0: I'm absolutely delighted that after an absence of a couple of weeks for family-related reasons, Rebecca Davis is back with us on Plan B, not in the studio, sitting opposite me, but on Skype to us from Pretoria. Hello, Rebecca.
1: Hello, John. I was going to start by complaining loudly about the heat in Pretoria, but I believe you guys are having it just as bad.
0: Not quite just as bad. Um, You were Looking, I think, at 38 or 39 today, we were dealing with a relatively mild 33. So you can complain.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I will proceed once we're done.
0: Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that um, was sort of a side benefit of being in Pretoria is that you were able to, to cover the Zondo Commission of Inquiry while Gibson and Genje and Mo Sheik were testifying earlier this week. And you picked up on something that I don't think too many other people have picked up on, which I thought very interesting.
1: Well, John, I think the wider picture here is that state capture has kind of skewed our national moral compass a bit to the extent that, You know, we listened to the Zonda Commission this week and we hear two former spy bosses, Mosheik and and Gibson Ginger, say, look, we tried. We tried to start an intelligence um, investigation into the Guptas in 2011. We were shut down by the former state security minister and by President Zuma, and then we were shuffled out of our jobs. And the, the takeaway is, you know, those are the good guys, right? Those are the ones who tried to do something, even if it came to nothing. I've been thinking a lot about their testimony, and there's so much about it that seems to me to be so unsatisfactory. Moshe said, for instance, that the two things that made them realize that they had to investigate the Guptas were that the CIA came to them and said, we're sniffing around the Guptas because we fear they are mining uranium on the behalf of the Iranians. This was in 2009. And the second thing he claimed was that they opened up a copy of the Sunday newspaper and they read a report about Fikila Mbalula telling ANC-NEC members that he had been offered the job as sports minister by the Guptas before he was actually appointed to the Post. Now, how does this square with the fact that they only start or try to start an official investigation into the Guptas in 2011, ostensibly prompted mainly by that newspaper article? And my main question, John, is that I think many of us would believe that the CIA has better intelligence capabilities than South African intelligence agencies. So it doesn't surprise me that the CIA was sniffing around uranium mining and, and South Africa wasn't. But are we truly to believe that local journalists have better intelligence gathering capacities, surveillance, etc., than the state security agency? To the extent that local journalists would know that the Guptas are offering cabinet positions like sweeties and are top. Top intelligence experts
0: do not. Uh, Yes, it's about it's about not wanting to know. Rolf Mayer was uh, gracious enough to concede that people in the National Party cabinet towards the end of the 80s and into the early 90s didn't know about the work that was being done by the CCB and organizations and, and paramilitary units like that because they didn't want to know. Because, I mean, it's one of the things that I, I said to F.W. de Clark when I interviewed him 20-odd years ago about his autobiography. I knew, I knew that mm. the CCB was doing this stuff because I read it in Freya Wehklot and the the Daily Mail and the Weekly Mail. How come you didn't know? No, we didn't know. And it's the same kind of thing, isn't it?
1: I don't think it is the same kind of thing, though. I think that is plausible in certain, in certain environments because we've also heard other testimony that the Gupta's influence on the Zoomers was all the talk, open discussion topic in political circles, that it was, you know, it was on the radar of people like the Reverend Frank Chikane, who said that he found it really sinister the way the Guptas targeted him, sought him out ages ago, you know, in the 90s already, when they first arrived, they seemed to know who to target. And his comment, independently to the Zonda Commission was, if our intelligence services didn't know about this, then we have no intelligence services. I find that impossible to square with the you know the presentation of someone like Sheikh, who's clearly highly intelligent, erudite man, who tells us he has this wealth of experience in intelligence, savvy, he drafted the constitution on intelligence, and yet we're supposed to believe he found out about the Guptas hiring and firing from the Sunday Times. And so, my
0: point, so, so Rebecca, do we not believe him when he testifies to that under oath at the Zondo Commission, or do we sort of try and understand why? Intelligence had such a blind spot around the Guptas that they needed the media to alert them to the dangers.
1: I think the picture I'm getting, John, if we look at these two things, the CIA comes to them and say, we're looking at the Guptas, and then the Sunday Times reports on the Guptas. What seems to have happened is, the intelligence service w- wise up to the fact that the world was aware of the Guptas and as a result they would have to take action as opposed to the situation before, which I suspect was, look, we all know the president has these dodgy friends, but it's the president and we're not going to touch them. And I just think that if someone like Moshe were to come out and say that, and he was, you know, scrupulously honest in other parts of his testimony, he admitted to his own cowardice, his own failings and various other regards. But I think it's stretching credulity not to think they that they did know about the Guptas and they didn't investigate them because of the president.
0: I'm convinced. I am. Uh, It's end of year for education and uh, Matrix are still writing. Uh, University students are still writing. Very interesting suggestion from The Guardian newspaper about exams and tertiary education.
1: So this sounds crazy, but I love this idea, John. So let's, let's just indulge it for a second and then we can tear it to shreds if you want. Op-ed in The Guardian, referring specifically to the Oxbridge system in the UK, where obviously Oxford and Cambridge are the most prestigious universities and have very limited um, entrance abilities for, for, I mean, as in few people get in. This writer suggested, why not let anyone who wants to Write a university final exam. She was talking about the UK, but I think it applies to South Africa too. So the idea would be at the beginning of the year, put up on the website or whatever, hand them out maybe even in hard copy, prescribed reading for the year. Say this is what you will have to cover. And let anyone who wants to then register to take the final exam, even if they are not enrolled as a student because they cannot afford it or because they have jobs, you know and see if and if they can pass that exam if they have the required knowledge then give them a degree from that institution
0: <laughs> i don't know how crazy it is i mean I, yeah, having a a degree from the university of venda is considerably less useful than having a degree from the university of cape town or wits so somebody who wasn't able to get into the university of cape town and has been studying their particular degree direction at the university of venda, registered to write the uct exams passes them and has a degree from uct it it kind of makes a lot of sense except in practical terms i mean how do you manage a exam system which would be so large and potentially unwieldy in south africa perhaps less so than the oxbridge system not sure a lot of people would fail. So you're you're dealing with spending a lot of resources on making it possible for a large number of people, a high percentage of which are going to fail, to write an exam.
1: So when I think about this, John, I'm not thinking about your vendor scenario, although I agree that's possible. I'm literally thinking of a very – I mean, I don't know if such a wondrous creature exists, but a a, a poor person who – literally cannot afford to get into university or has to work, just cannot get there, Mm. who is willing to sit by themselves, do the work and then at a library, which is another problem because we know South Africa's libraries aren't well equipped and then write the exam at the end of the year. And I suspect there would actually be very few people who would be willing to put in that kind of work. But if they were, should they not be recognized in that way? Yes, you would have to employ more markers. Of course, you would have to find a way of organizing the exam system, but it seems to me to be, you know, it's not, totally ludicrous to suggest that something like that could be a way of opening up the university system in a way which would cost relatively little money
0: yeah i mean somebody's just uh, whatsapp to say unisa question mark and i suppose that that's another um it's along the lines of the vendor example somebody who's registered to do law at at unisa and writes the llb exams through uct through the system gets a L L B from uct that's worth more isn't it
1: I, I would also say the problem with Unisa is, first of all, it does cost money, yeah. and second of all, we, most of us, I think, would agree that a, a degree from Unisa is not as prestigious. Mm. So there might well be, you know, it might well be more attractive to someone to take this to take this other option.
0: It's not entirely ludicrous. It's a long way short of entirely ludicrous. I think it's a very interesting idea, and I'm certainly. Uh, Nicola, let's uh, schedule a call to the um, universities, the umbrella body for universities, and just ask them if it's something that they've ever considered or or would consider. And I can always rely on you, Rebecca, to find a strange story somewhere in the world.
1: There is an epidemic taking place in the U.S., and that is of parents who are very worried about their short Sons. So this applies particularly to male children, to the point where NPR reported last week on this American Life. There are the this deluge of parents going to doctors asking them to prescribe their sons with human growth hormone. Apparently, it's out of control now. The amount of requests doctors are getting. Now, just to note, human growth hormone is prescribed for people who have certain medical conditions. I don't think it's for dwarfism, but you know there are reasons why people, why children are not growing fast enough, and those are the conditions under which this is supposed. To be prescribed, but we're not talking about that, John. We're just talking about parents who are so worried that their sons will be short and will be disadvantaged that they are looking for any medical way out. So your first question may be, how short are we talking? Yeah, I mean that's
0: obviously. I mean, are they they happy with five foot five or anything below five foot eight? They want to uh, do a drug injection.
1: So apparently. If, to, to, in order to be prescribed this drug, you have to qualify for something called idiopathic short stature. I've researched this and it says that you have to be shorter than two standard deviations below the mean, which obviously means nothing to us, John, but it's, it's, it, it's sort of the shortest 5% of adults. The journalist who reported the story for NPR is a man who is 5 foot 2 and he said he would fit in to idiopathic short stature and would have qualified for human growth hormone. My question, John, is, and I, honestly, perhaps it is my, height privilege, my female privilege, that has blinded me to this. But is life as a short adult man really so unbearable that parents would want to spare their children that prospect? I'm asking in all seriousness. I'd love to hear from your listeners. Are you a short man who has felt consistently disadvantaged professionally, romantically in your life? Would you have wanted a medical um, did the solution. journalist
0: uh, confess to uh, want, saying, I, I wish my parents had had access to these human growth hormones so that I could have got up to five foot six instead of my five foot two? Or did he feel that at five foot two, he was having a perfectly valuable and enriched and productive life?
1: The latter, although there was a touch of sort of... Um short positivity in his presentation if you see what i mean so i'm not sure he would have been too upfront about that but he certainly said that he felt as a short man that it has not defined his existence he did feel that he has been taken less seriously than other adult men in certain professional environments however but other than that he said you know being short he felt perfectly okay about it but apparently john this is not the the case everywhere how how tall are you may I um i'm
0: five foot eleven and a half whatever that is in meters i'm not sure
1: so that's, that's quite a, a bountiful height. You're probably quite proud of that.
0: No, I'm entirely indifferent to it. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very, very much indeed. And, uh, yeah, uh, Rebecca will be back in studio with us next week.